Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today is economist Robert Shapiro, who is the co-founder and chairman of Sonicon, a Washington-based private consultancy for economic and security policy-related issues. He has advised public officials, including President Bill Clinton, Prime Minister Tony Blair, senior members of the Obama cabinet and administration, U.S. senators and representatives, and the director of the International Monetary Fund. He has also advised senior executives of numerous Fortune 100 companies. He holds a Ph.D. from Harvard, a Master of Science from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and an A.B. from my alma mater, uh, University of Chicago. He's also been a fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, Brookings Institution, and Harvard. Previously, he served as Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the administration of Bill Clinton, Principal Economic Advisor to Bill Clinton during the 1992 campaign, Senior Economic Advisor to Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Kerry, and Al Gore in their campaigns. In his Commerce Department position, he oversaw the major statistical agencies of the United States, including the Census Bureau, while it was carrying out the 2000 Census. I'll be asking him a question about what he thinks about the 2020 Census. He currently serves as Director of the Blockchain Investment Fund, Medici Venture Fund, Policy Fellow at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, and as a member of the advisory boards to biotech company Gilead Sciences and the investment firm Coat Capital. Rob Shapiro should not be confused with the celebrity lawyer, Robert Shapiro, <laughs> as happened in a 2020 BBC interview. We'll try not to do that, Rob. <laughs> you didn't go to law school, so... Uh. <laughs> Welcome to the Hale Report. Um, we've known each other for a, a, a quite some time. Um, and if you've listened to my other podcast, you know that I always start out by asking my guests, what it was it that inspired them to follow their chosen careers? Um, we were both undergraduates at University of Chicago, but were you an econ major then? No, I was actually, uh, I majored in metaphysics. Um, a, wow. Uh, the... A special committee at the University of Chicago at that time called the Committee on the Analysis of Ideas and Study of Method, uh, or Ideas and Methods, and uh, which analyzed the way to, uh, great thinkers have framed problems and the way they frame their answers rather than the substance. So when I was in college, the notion of being an economic advisor and an an economist um, uh, never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it absolutely never occurred to me. And um, however, when I was graduating, uh, the country was in turmoil, much as it is today. And I faced the, uh, the recognition that I was not Hegel or Kant. 
I was not going to be a great philosopher. And when you feel that your society is unraveling, being a philosopher, to me, felt like an indulgence if I wasn't going to be a great one. And so I decided to apply the kind of analytic techniques um, to um, politics and economics on the view that if the society is coming apart, um, I want to try to try to put it back together. And so I needed to study those things. And I focused on economics. The, the, the truth is that I focused on economics because I said to myself, okay, you want to be a policy person. You want to affect the direction of the country. Um, what is it that most people care about? And most people care about money. I was going to say, I think that's the answer. And, and incentives. So <laughs> I said to myself, if I know more than other people about issues in that affect money, they, there will always be political figures who will listen to me. And you were right. You were 100%. <laughs> so you took off for LSE then after you graduated. Yes. Like. What I, what I <laughs> decided to do was I decided to ease my way into political economy by studying political philosophy. That was my bridge. And I chose that because a philosopher, a political theorist whom I admired enormously um, named Michael Oakeshott, um, uh, agreed to take me on as a student. And so I went to LSE really to study with him. Um, but he was retiring. And so uh, I had he not been, I might have been persuade, persuaded myself to do political theory, but because he was such a great man. Um, but he wasn't. And so I came back and um, applied to uh, the political economy program at Harvard, uh, which is part government, part economics. And what was striking <laughs> about my application was when I applied, I had never taken an economics or political science course. Literally, wow. literally had never right. taken one. And Harvard said, all right, we're going to take you. But would you please read the basic text before you come? <laughs> and I said, sure. Those were the days. <laughs> yes, it was a different era. Um, getting a doctorate was kind of done on a kind of gentlemanly and gentlewoman basis. Uh, and, um, and I, you know, I had quite a bit of math, but um, I was clearly not going to be a quantitative uh, focus on quantitative analysis at that time. Um, and at that time, you could still write a dissertation. I had one section that was quantitative analysis, and 80% of it was discursive and analytic. And you could do that in those days. You could not do that today. And what was the title of your thesis? What was it about? Coin of the liberal realm, and it was an analysis of uh, 
The institutional forces, as well as economic forces, which shaped changes in the way the monetary system has been managed in the United States, starting with wampum (laughs) in the Massachusetts colonies through the Federal Reserve uh, up, up until 1970. Well, we'll get into cryptocurrencies and blockchain a little later, but I think maybe you need an addendum probably (laughs) to your history. (laughs) Well, you know, I studied archaeology in Near Eastern languages at U of C, and I think even though that's not what I do today, it gave me the framework to analyze ideas. And it sounds to me that that's, I recognize a fellow hardcore undergraduate (laughs) You know, one of the one of the advantages of approaching economics in, in the way I did and you have is that you already really know how to think before you begin to learn economics. And so you don't simply accept everything as given. And you question everything. Uh, and um, I felt that gave me a... Um, Uh, an analytic advantage, frankly, over people who had been studying economics since they were freshmen in college. I agree with that. I agree. The big picture is important. You can be blinded by models. So, you you know, you've written about the history of economics, um, but you also uh, wrote a book called Futurecast, which I happen to have. Right here. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Here yes, we go. There it is. There it is. And um, yeah, it's in our library here. And I was really impressed. This was the, this book was uh, written in 2008. And I was impressed by some of the arguments you made about what was going to be happening today. Yeah. And I thought maybe we could, I don't know if you've looked at that book. I, I, there are two copies left on Amazon. <laughs> so I can tell our listeners, but the Spanish version of an update is worth $989, I think. Really? So if you have copies. <laughs> well, I do. It's um, uh, It was published in 12 languages um, and sold much better in Asia and in Europe than in the United States. That happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you outline in this book three key vectors of transformation um, and a couple of what I call, Michelle Wooker calls gray rhinos, not really black swines, swans, but things you know that are coming, problems that you know that are coming but ignore. So you wrote about demographics, globalization, and the earthquake and geopolitics caused by the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, what did you say then and how do you look at it now? Um, if you remember what you wrote then. Well, I sur- I believe <laughs> me, I remember. Um, uh, well, I think they, they remain fundamental forces driving the paths of the major nations in the world. But today I would add media, transformative media. Um, that, uh, that was not... I mean, I certainly recognize the impact of information technologies in globalization as a factor in globalization, um, but the impact of 
new media on politics uh, is something I did not anticipate. And I would, I would add that as a force. Um, okay. I think I would alter, you know, I think the, um, you know, the demographics are a permanent feature of this period. Uh, and, and we see it everywhere. Uh, we see it in the decline in Russia. We see it in um, the explosive politics in the Middle East. We see it in uh, the decades-long stagnation in uh, Japan. We see it, we are going to see it in um, China. Um, China is the most rapidly aging um, uh, major country in the world. Um, and one of the reasons uh, Italy is always the sick, the sick, sick boy of the EU is its demographics. That and the fact that for reasons which I can't explain, it is an enormous outlier in female participation in the workforce. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Um, a um, much, much lower labor participation by women in Italy than in France or Germany or the UK or Spain. Um, it seems to be cultural, but it has, uh, that is a kind of demi-demographic phenomenon. <laughs> So women hold up half the sky is what you're saying. Absolutely. <laughs> More than half in my experience. Uh, uh, the, I am most satisfied with the analysis of globalization. And the reason is that it was not really widely understood at the time. It's incredibly complex. And it has evolved in a fairly predictable way from certain basic forces, um, and uh, which are driven substantially by technology. They are also driven by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, before that, there was no global economy. There were two, <laughs> two demi-global economies. Um, there was the, what was then called the free world, which was everything that was not Russia, China, and the countries allied with it. Um, and then there was Russia, China, and the countries allied with it, which is mainly about India, frankly, um, and who was very closely allied and had uh, a highly managed economy. Um, and so globalization... Um, is really the, it is the first real, real global economy that we've seen in uh, perhaps millennia. And the transformative impact of the ability to both source, find labor, and sell, find labor and materials in sourcing, and um, sell into any, any, any market in the world and to personalize the, the production of 
commoditized goods and services for particular large markets um, has had um, a um, probably the greatest effect of anything that has happened since World War II. Um, and you see it most clearly, frankly, in um, the large, uh, formerly poor developing countries that embraced it. Uh, and um, uh, where, you know, the lives of hundreds of billions of people have been transformed. Um, and it also tells you what the agenda should be to improve the lives of um, a billion Africans and nearly a billion Latin Americans. Um, and um, uh, so the, um, uh, and, and of course, you know, what we didn't see, what I didn't see then, and which I don't think anyone saw at the time, was um, the way in which the globalization of markets would require um, new measures in public investment in the advanced countries to avoid um, income stagnation and growing inequality. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in the Clinton administration um, is all we could see were the positive effects, which were enormous, not only in countries, in uh, developing countries, but, you know, the United States had the longest and strongest expansion in its history uh, in through the 1990s. Uh, and four years of budget surpluses, <laughs> um, and um, and a um, investment boom that we hadn't seen since the fifties and sixties, um, and um, so we did not see the dark side. You know, when uh, Kissinger went to China, most people thought that was about U.S.-China relations, but really it was a blocking action against the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And I think that w that people have forgotten that. I really think your point is very important. Um, and that's what allowed China to uh, apply for acceptance to the WTO you're an insider during that period of time, right? With the W, do you think, in retrospect, based upon the political reaction here in the U.S. due to loss of manufacturing jobs and so forth, do you think it was a mistake to push China into the WTO? No, uh, no, I don't. Um, uh, I think what you do is. Um, uh, and we didn't push her into the WTO. We let her in. And right. it is the case that we gave her more protections than she needed, more exemptions, ten, you know, for a period of 10 to 20 years from certain WTO requirements. And we should, we didn't see quite how quickly she would develop. 
nor did we and and nor did anybody <laughs> right but right but let's recognize that chinese development was was driven almost exclusively by american foreign direct investment um that it, the in the year 2000 china was really good at producing shoes t-shirts and furniture it had no capacity in advanced manufacturing. Um, and all of that came from the United States, from foreign, from foreign direct investment. Um, and the mistake we made was we allowed China to coerce the intellectual property of American companies through the arrangements that they required in order to invest. And we should not have done that. It was a big mistake, a mistake of the Bush administration. And it, and the Obama administration was a little better, but they didn't push it hard enough either. Um, and um, uh, so we were a little naive about the nature of the Chinese regime. And if there's Certainly one thing that I did not see coming was the decline of the technocrats in China and the rise of a new strongman. Uh, and the that is that is going to have that is already but will have enormous geopolitical effects um, over the next decade. Uh. You know, what's really interesting with these two very different systems um, that you describe that when I first went to China in 1979, um, they had perfect income equality at that time, actually perfect. And now probably of the large nations, the U.S. and China have the most income inequality coming at it from two different how, how do you look at that? And what do you think should be done, if anything, well, can be done? Well, in China, you know, look, China, um, China is profoundly corrupt. You know, you see this in the management of the financial sector, um, in who gets to list on the stock exchanges and, um, and the distribution of bank credit. Which is all come almost all coming from state-owned or state-directed banking. So part of it is that, you know, it's a it it's a a softer version of what happened in Russia, of a kind of kleptocracy, um, uh, a softer version of that. Um, but look, part of it is we are. In an era of enormous technological advance, um, the return on capital goes up. And not only does the return on capital rise, but the technologies reduce the labor, the value of the labor of those people whose jobs used to be either what the technology is doing or a piece of what the technology is doing. So, you know, what we've seen, so, so you have pressure up 
um, on those who own capital and pressure down on labor. Uh, and this, this is, um, that in itself is not a phenomenon of policy. It's a phenomenon of, of economic and technological development. The absence of a response to it is all policy and all politics. Uh, and, you know, there is the notion that in a period, you know, I just, I, I was just doing an analysis of what's happened in the labor market from January 2008 to the present. And, you know, through that whole period, um, the only group, all, more than 100% of the growth in the labor market is in college-educated people, more than 100%. There is no, right, no, there is only declining demand for labor without a college degree. And yet, when you walk this, the streets of Chicago, Rob, it's help wanted, help wanted everywhere. Far more job openings, particularly in the service industry, then are being filled right now. Uh, do you see that as a temporary phenomenon? Will um, companies, manu especially manufacturers, who just can't find people, even though they're raising salaries, I hear anecdotally about this constantly here in the Midwest, um, they're going to invest in automation uh, because it makes it's rational for them to do that. So do you think that these low skilled jobs, lower skilled jobs are going to disappear or get filled once benefits um, run out? How do you look at that? Well, low skilled jobs will always be filled. Um, uh, it's not efficient to automate low skilled jobs, frankly, because, um, uh, you know, it's not, Artificial intelligence is irrelevant here, <laughs> and, you know. Th right. These are these are jobs largely about the movement of uh, physical goods within a process from one place to another, from from a company to a customer. Um, they will be logistics. Filled. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. they will be filled. Though though those jobs won't disappear. Uh, however, um, uh, the period of the pandemic, and in particular, the enormous um, cash benefits provided to almost all Americans, to 90% of Americans, has meant that people are now more picky they won't work for $9 an hour. Um, and, um, you know, they, they may not work for $12 an hour. It may take $15 an hour. And let's remember, you know, I go back to, you know, my political philosophy and say, you know, one of the end to Adam Smith and say, um, you know, John Locke, Adam Smith saw capitalism as a moral institution. That is an institution which allowed people to develop their themselves, their selves, 
through interacting with the world, and the main way you did that is through work. Um, well, as a moral system, um, anyone who works full-time year-round should not have to live in poverty in the richest nation in the history of the world. Um, and that's what $9 an hour, that, that's where $9 and $12 an hour puts you. Um, so I think that's a wake-up call. Um, and the fact is that, you know, in the 1930s, to me, in the 1930s, we had a collapse in the system and we invented a whole series of interventions that created a very basic uh, safety net for people. Said, we're a rich country, we can afford this, and we can. Well, we, have now, we are now coming through a different kind of gradual crisis, which has been caused substantially by, glo by globalization. Um, or is a result of globalization. Um, and I think we're going to have to do the same. Uh, we are going to have to, the fact is, globalization, um, because it is so efficient to move so many lower-skilled jobs to other countries which have a not just a surplus of labor, but, you know, lower taxes, cheap real estate, um, uh, you know, the, the society has a responsibility to its members. And there are, you know, for example, in an era in which um, all the job creation is coming from um, industries that want to employ college-educated people, the notion that it costs, that it bankrupts families and leaves kids in, in, with enormous debt for decades in order to get a college education is unsupportable. Um, it's, it's, I, I believe it is absolutely unsupportable. And I think we should, you know, one of the things we should do, and I've urged the Biden administration on this, and they haven't gone as far as I'd like to see them see them go, is um, free tuition at all state institutions for um, people who live in that state. Right. Um, and, and community colleges as well. Right. Yes, but not just community colleges. Community colleges are, are a great thing in particular for people, um, their real strength it, they have two strengths. One is occupational training. Um, you can learn to be an electrician at a community college. I think that's particularly important for adults, frankly. Um, the other for young people is community colleges as a way to um, secure the background and skills necessary for a full bachelor's education, because our secondary education is so terrible in area in low-income areas. So here's a question, right. Is a college education really necessary for the jobs that people are being hired for? 
Is this just a weeding out mechanism for companies that that is not, and maybe is this somewhere that policy could have some sort of influence to say that a lot of these jobs you don't really need a college education for? It's just a kind of a, a barrier to entry of the, in the job market. Um, well, it's certainly true that there are, there are a lot of jobs that don't require a college education, a lot fewer than there used to be. And that's, again, a phenomenon of technology. Um, you have to, you have to be, be able to um, operate productively in an environment that is suffused with sophisticated technologies in almost any job except low-skill labor. And so a lot of jobs that didn't require a college education, now a college education makes sense uh, for that reason. Um, and the market says this is the case. And the reason we know this is the difference in the median income of people age 25 to 29 um, based on education. And there is... Um, uh, there is some improvement from high school diploma to associate's degree, which is a graduating from community college, but a much bigger gap between associate and bachelor degrees. The market is saying we want college, we want some of the skills that you get with a college education. And it's not that you know history or literature. Um, it's that you can, you are used to operating independently to solve problems. Um, and there is also an even bigger gap between the bachelor's degree and graduate degrees, either professional degrees or, surprisingly enough, people with doctorates have a higher median income than people with professional degrees. <laughs> well, it's and yet there are people with doctorates too end up driving taxis. It's a really checkered kind of a, a landscape. So also one thing I read that surprised me, um, part of this unintended consequences, um, you wrote, I think last month in The Atlantic, an essay that was really great. And I'm just going to quote you on some of the statistics. In the first quarter of 2021, the net assets of the bottom half of all households totaled 2.6 trillion, 57% higher than the first quarter of 2019 before the pandemic. Similarly, the net assets of the next 40% of American households totaled 36.5 trillion in the first quarter this year, 20% more than two years ago. And the point of your essay is that we have unusual, an unusual bump in savings that could prevent an economic recovery. But also what's fascinating to me is that the, the lower half of the economy did the best in relative terms to where they were before. That was very surprising to me, very interesting. Well, part of it is that um, the base was much smaller. Was lower, of course, and, yeah. And, and don't forget, a lot of this was coming from the checks to households, mm -hmm. and they were the same size for every household. 
right? I mean, if you had the same number of kids anyway. Um, uh, the, the, the importance of the saving rate here is that um, it tells you that even though we managed to get everything about the, we managed to get everything about the pandemic wrong, except the economics of it, which we got right. I love that statement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and the fact is that, you know, we were sending checks. Look, 70% of the country, their incomes went up during the pandemic. Apart from government benefits, their wage and salaries went up. There was 30% of the country who were hit badly by it. They had some, some unemployment. Um, uh, however, uh, but everybody was getting checks, right? Including most of the 70% whose incomes were going up. So the question was, and it was a question my former classmate and colleague Larry Summers was asking, was he was saying, oh, this is much too much. Um, why should people who are doing fine get checks? Well, the reason why we had to do that was that the saving rate went from 7.5% to 20% of disposable income. Had we not done that, there would have been a collapse in consumer spending because this saving um, was not the normally people save for to achieve something in the future. They want a, a down payment for a house, they're saving for retirement, they're saving to send their kids to college, they're saving for a vacation. This was panic saving. This was this, emergency saving, really. This was caution, panic cautionary saving because for the first time, nobody knew, no, nobody knew if, if their jobs were going to be there. And nobody knew how long the pandemic was going to last. Nobody knew how fatal it was going to be. Um, and people were terrified of getting very sick and not being able to pay their mortgage, not being, a, the, the, not being able to maintain their basic lifestyle. And so there was this explosion of uh, precautionary saving. And... In, in the absence of the floods of checks, um, the economy would still be in a deep recession today. So do you agree with Larry he, about the concerns that he has? Or uh, what would you or what are you advising the Biden team to do now? How do you, you said it's been successful so far, but, but there are concerns around the corner perhaps, that you might have, yeah. Um, let me say, I think so long as, I mean, there are two things, uh, lots of things happening in the economy right now. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a very difficult uh, uh, management, pro policy management problem because there are so many exogenous forces acting into the economy. Um, and there has been so much change in the last year in the economy. You know, normally economies ch change in a very gradual, incremental way. and We get to respond. Um, sometimes you have a big exogenous shock. You know, that was the story of oil in the 70s and 
which became the story of inflation <laughs> and productivity. Um, but uh, those kinds of exogenous shocks are very unusual. We had we 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 had a kind of it was really an endogenous shock, but I'm thinking the financial crisis. Um, and but the financial crisis was really a crisis. Really, never went to the real economy. It was always fairly insulated in the financial economy. Um, the only part it went into was housing because it came out of housing finance. Right. Um, and so, but this time we have the destruction of hundreds of thousands of businesses. We have a new pressures on, on workers, particularly women, um, who some of whom are, are still have to stay home because their children are not in school. Um, and we don't know what it's going to be like in September, frankly, um, uh, with respect to that. We still have, we don't have 20% saving rate, but we've got 12 to 14, um, which again is, is unsustainable for consumption, um, as a sudden change. We could do it if we gradually made our way to that. Um, uh, without additional stimulus. Um, and so I, I am, um, uh, we, and, and it's true that we do not know how much, uh, what the inflationary impact is going to be. Um, I tend to believe it will be fairly modest. Larry thinks it'll be greater. Neither of us knows. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no history of, of a shock this sudden and deep, right? It, do, it just doesn't exist in economic history. But, right? but if you think about it, you know, one of the things the economy is facing right now is, you know, we have pumped in um, over $3 trillion in additional spending um, over the last year or so, um, last six, 15 months. Um, all of that is coming to an end. How does the economy respond to that sudden decline in government stimulus? Well, that's a big risk for an economy which is already fragile. And that's why I, I support these large programs. Now, everybody talks about them in terms of three and a half trillion dollars, right? Okay, but that's over 10 years. <laughs> what I'm looking at is, you know, the, the idea of putting another three, 300 to 400 billion dollars a year into the economy over the next two years looks pretty sensible to me given both the saving rate and given, given that uh, the economy has been riding on a lot more stimulus than that. Right. So it's just like the Fed. They can't take their foot off the accelerator suddenly or will experience something. 
So uh, another aspect of this, um, of course, is the internet. And one thing that the Clinton administration did was they did not suffocate the development of the internet with taxation and so forth. That was, I, I, I asked a question um, at an, uh, of Bill Clinton about why he did that. <laughs> and, you know, and I, because it really made a huge difference. And look at the, what we've experienced now, how would we have gotten through this period of time had that not occurred? It's, it's hard to imagine. We wouldn't be talking right now, for, sh- for sure. Well, and certainly... Except on the phone, I guess, right? Right. Uh, it's not just that. It's the backbone of the economy now. It's in everything. All logistics run through the internet. Uh, and so the... Um, and I will tell you, I was in those White House discussions, and right. there were... You know, there were people who wanted, who said, this is a telecommunications technology. We should, we should regulate it just like we regulate, you know, broadcast and cable. And, and I said, um, and I wasn't the only one who said this. I said, look, this is an entirely new technology. Um, why don't we see how it develops? Let's see how it develops naturally. We can always come back once it once it is fully more fully manifest if there are uh, negative externalities, uh, as we economists say. <laughs> and there have been a few, although taxation it now when you buy Amazon something on Amazon, you are taxed. At the beginning, you weren't, so that did change almost imperceptibly. Uh, I will tell you, I'm on the board of directors of Overstock, and uh, Overstock's been paying sales taxes everywhere for many years, Um, and um, it's doing fine. (laughs) So that leads me into blockchain. Are we in a similar situation right now? There's the B conference going on right now, the B word conference going on today, where Elon Musk and... Um, Dorsey and everybody are talking about um, regulation of blockchain. And I know you're active in blockchain too. Is this really an analogous situation where if we overregulate prematurely, we risk losing an innovative competitive edge? And when you look at China, what I see in China, they're rolling over mining machines. They're kicking out all the miners. They're creating a central bank digital currency that will be a monopoly instead of having any competition. Uh, do you think that, do you, am I making the right um, Absolutely. linkages here? Okay. Now, now I will tell you, you know, I, I, um, Overstock is a major, major actor in blockchain. It, it has this portfolio of companies in the Met, called the Medici companies and, uh, including the leading blockchain-based financial service uh, young company called T-Zero, which is the only um, uh, blockchain-based financial service company which has passed SEC regulation. Uh, It's fully regulated by the SEC. What they do is they are um, uh, raising money for private businesses by issuing security tokens. Uh, that, that's the main business of T-Zero. 
Um, this is a, look, as an economist, um, this, the, the most important fact about blockchain is how radically efficient it is. Uh, now, I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies here. I'm talking about the, the underlying technology which can be applied to any process which involves exchanges, um, any kind of exchange, purchases and sales in particular. It eliminates the middleman. It says that, you know, for example, um, with blockchain, people who uh, don't have access to credit cards can, buy, can make purchases without physical cash um, through a blockchain transaction that goes directly from their bank to the uh, seller. Um, any, any process, any technology which enables you to eliminate middlemen is radically efficient. Well, supply chains too. Yes, be. absolutely. Yeah. And it is being used in some supply chain. Uh, now, yes, it's, in a, it's still in its infancy. It is where the internet was in the early 90s. And, um, you know, the enthusiasts, I think, thought it was going to take off in two years. No, it takes longer. It takes longer because um, people have to figure out how to make the best use of it. And because there's a lot, uh, because it is so disruptive in precisely the way the Internet was disruptive, um, there is... Uh, there are a lot of vested interests who are opposing it. You know, I would say I disagree a little bit with you on one issue, which sure. is that the crypto, that I don't think you can disentangle cryptocurrencies from blockchains in, in the public realm because there have to be incentives for people to maintain the blockchains, which is just what, are, what creates cryptocurrencies. It's a private blockchain then someone can pay for that blockchain to be maintained. Right. Well, you may be right. And um, the Fed is doing a lot of work on a digital currency. Right. Um, and we can have a digital dollar. We will have a digital dollar. We already do kind of have a digital Absolutely. dollar. Absolutely. I think it exists right away. <laughs> it's just an enhancement, right? That's exactly right. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of industries that didn't take the Internet seriously and they got destroyed. Um, and they learned and everybody learned a lesson from that. And so so there is going to be a lot a lot more resistance to. Um, blockchain than there was to the internet. Uh, and that just means it has to be able to show, to demonstrate its value in, um, in a way that cannot be ignored. Right. I, th I think one thing about technology, you can't keep it down oh, over time. Well, um, I think it's fair to say that you're, uh, Rob, that you're a, f a fairly active Democrat. 
And so, and so I wanted to ask you a, a little bit of a question about the political, literally the landscape, because, um, you know, you oversaw the 20, 2000 census and next month, um, the Census Bureau, as a result of the 2020 census, is going to be releasing the data to states so that they can redistrict. Are we going to have a fight on our hands? What's going to happen, do you think? Well, it's really a tragedy. They, 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 this is the worst census in modern times. Uh, they starved it of money. They, uh, they shortened the periods of training and and application, um, you know, normally you get, you know, a response rate in the end, which is somewhat, which is around 99%, <laughs> literally. And I think the response rate this time is going to be about 85%. Was that because of COVID as well or um, money, all of the above or... COVID had some effect, but it was mainly money and the fact that the administration was simply not committed to a to carrying out a complete and fair census. Um, and I mean, had I <laughs> had I gone into the administration, this administration, I would have pushed for an extension and said, we need to go back into the field. And we and we we need to complete this census. Um, and let me say the impact of that. Um, uh, uh, the Trump administration thought an inaccurate census would help the Republicans because um, undercounted people were more likely to be people of color and poor people. Uh, and but the fact is. <laughs> There are a lot of Republican states that have enormous populations of people of color and low-income people, like Florida and Texas, for example. Um, and so, and in fact, um, Texas believes that it it lost it that it should have gained three seats instead of two, and they probably would have in a more accurate census. Um, so the partisan effects, we don't know. What we do know is there's more than a trillion dollars a year in federal funding that is distributed based at least in part on census data. And that means that the funds are going to be just not going to be distributed in the most efficient and effective way. They're still going to be distributed. <laughs> the the total amount of the funds is unaffected by whether the census is accurate or not. The only thing is it's not going to they they it will not go as as much to the states that and communities that need it as they would have in a more accurate census. Are we going to have a budget crisis as well? Um Janet Yellen has said that she's quite worried that you said we have the trillion dollars, but if we've reached the budget ceiling, do you think that that's something that's going to be a surprise this summer? This is, you know, uh, today uh, McConnell said no Republican will vote to raise the debt ceiling. 
Um, now, that's a negotiating position. I'm sure. Um, and we have been through this before. Um, and the question is, what is the concession that the administration can live with and the Republicans are willing to accept? Right now, what the Republicans, what they say they would accept is unacceptable to the administration and to the Democrats in Congress. And what the Democrats and the, and the administration are willing to provide is unacceptable to the Republicans. That's where it always starts. Um, the question is, do we still have a Congress, and in particular a Republican Party, and in particular in the House, which will negotiate in good faith in the sense that negotiate because they agree that the, the necessary result is an agreement. And we don't know. You know, we had the vast majority of House Republicans who didn't want to accept the results of the election. So we just don't know. This is part of the toxin that has entered the political bloodstream from Donald Trump. Well, we'll see how all that works out. But I think that's one of the things that, you know, markets are worried that this is a new they era. Should be. Yeah, this is a new era where, you know, the, the, the inconceivable can happen. And it's been happening. I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. So, Rob, I, I have to ask you, what's next? And are you going to work on a book? I would love to read a book. Uh, that you'd written about some of these experiences that you've had, but are are you thinking about doing something uh, uh, a new future cast? Well, I am. I am. I have begun the thinking and research for my next book, um, but it is um, it's kind of a return to my roots, and that is, um, I am going to try to understand um, exactly the state of the um, damaged state of both our politics and our economy and the relation between it. I don't think we understand it. And to do that, I am really going back to basics. I am starting by reading <laughs> Aristotle's politics and Hobbes and Locke. Back to school. <laughs> and Rousseau. Again, all, almost all great political philosophy was written at times of political crisis and social crisis in the society of the philosopher. And that's what drives them to try to figure it out. And... Um, um, and so I'm starting with that, really not because I think they have the answer for now, but rather because I, again, I want to see what were the factors that they thought were, that they identified as critical, and what were the questions they asked. Um, and I have spent the last 30 years trying to understand the American political system and the American economy. And, you know, I have, I have faced the fact 
that I'm not as smart as I was when I was 25. <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> I read No one is. <laughs> right. No, that's what happens. But I have experience and wisdom that I didn't have at 25. And I want to see if I can bring that to bear in order uh, to understand exactly where we are. I am very, very, I am genuinely and sincerely concerned that the kind of democracy that we grew up in may be uh, ending um, and that we may be very well be moving into a more authoritarian uh, kind of society. Um, and it's not Trump's fault. Trump advanced it uh, in un unexpected ways, but th this is a long-term development. You are going to see with the Biden administration much greater use of executive power in domestic life than before Trump. Presidents never give up power once it's been established. Um, that's the way politics works. Uh, and so I think if we're going to try to make the case for democracy and let me say also generally free markets, because there are no free markets in authoritarian countries. <laughs> uh, right. They do not exist. Um, uh, if we're going to try to preserve that, we need to really deeply understand exactly where we are. And so that's the that's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> well, that's the that's kind of the brings us back to the beginning when you started at University of Chicago thinking about philosophy, but now because you've you were an active participant in economic policy and political policy as well, now you I think now you're ready to become the great philosopher. <laughs> but I have to tell you, you know, I'm also I'm I'm doing a study right now of um, women and minorities uh, on the internet um, I, as kind of creators on the internet um, were um, um, uh, doing another study of the impact of treating people who have been treated as independent contractors or gig, including gig workers as employees. What's the impact on the economy if you do that? I mean, I mean, we're continuing to do our regular, you know, what's, what's happening in industries, but the book is what I do on my free time. Free time. It's it's the long view. It's the but long. I really appreciate your helping um, this female content creator <laughs> <laughs> create more content. Yes. On the internet and Any, um, anytime. It's just lovely to talk to you and and really this you know what really um, strikes me after our discussion before our discussion I've always known this about you that it's not just about the statistics in the in economics it's also about the people. And work, for example, is about people and dignity and the ethics of what we do together as a society. And I have to say, I share your concerns as well. So thank you so much for joining me, Rob. Thank you. And thank you to the people behind the scenes, too, who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer, Sam Fu.
please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. 